our teaching segment here this morning uh, with an, kind of an interactive exercise. So uh, at the end of each aisle, there were a stack of 3x5 cards. Did anybody not get a 3x5 card? Did anybody walk by that and not see it? Because we're going to get them right now. Aaron and Monica are going to go grab those and get them to you. So just leave your hand up. And uh, actually, there's some pens back there too, um, but they're not going to deliver pens. If you need a pen, go get one or get one from your neighbor. Just keep your hand up while I talk here for a second. We'll get these 3x5 cards to you. Um, I just did a little test this morning. I wanted to see if anybody reads the announcements on the screen, and that verified it for me. How many of you saw the announcement on the screen that said, grab a 3x5 card at the end of each aisle? Okay. Wait, some of you who have your hands up right now saw that announcement. Wait, what? All right. Um, all right. So, well, you're ahead of the... You're just... way ahead of everybody else. We know that. Yeah, I don't... All right, so in order for this to work, I need you to participate, okay? So um, while the girls are just finishing getting these out, thank you for doing that. I want to I ask you a simple question this morning. And I want you to write the answer to this question on your 3x5 card. No one's going to see this card. In fact, depending on where you're sitting, you may not see this card right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can make it work. This is just between you and God. No one's going to see this card. So don't filter, Okay. And if you're wondering, well, what's the point then? No one's going to see it. Just play along with me, humor me a little bit for this exercise, okay? Um, I think you'll see the point in a few minutes. Here's the question. Every once in a while, as followers of Christ, God will nudge us out of our comfort zones. He will nudge us into arenas of life and into circumstances and into opportunities that we are not comfortable with. And oftentimes, our problem in these situations is not that we're not willing. It's not that we're not willing, it's that we feel that we're unable. We're like, God, I'd be, I'd be happy to do this, but this is beyond me. I don't know how to do this. And every once in a while, in the life of every Christian, it cycles back around. It's not a once-for-all kind of thing. You know, oh yeah, well, back 17 years ago, God asked me to do something I didn't know how to do, and I did it, and that was great. Yeah, I'm really glad he asked me about that. But every once in a while, in order for God to accomplish his kingdom purposes, he's going to just show up and he's going to come to you and he's going to nudge you and he's going to say, here's an opportunity. Here's an assignment. I want you to go out now and do this. So the best of your ability, here's the question. What is that thing that you believe God is nudging you to do? Nudging you to trust him, nudging you to take a step of faith, nudging you to leave a comfort zone. What is that one thing in your life right now? You're going to have about two minutes to think about that and just hold on to the card and we'll move forward. The band's going to play.
I don't know about you, I love listening to musicians just jam and make up a song on the fly. Did you recognize that song? No, you did not. Because Ben hadn't heard it till this morning when he started playing the guitar. Um, no, thank you. I appreciate you guys. Um, in the spring of 1995, uh, you remember that? 1995. <clears throat> I'm just kind of looking around the room wondering how many of you I knew in the spring of 1995. A few of you. I was 26 years old, and you were much younger as well. <clears throat> Mark Warner. I was a full-time youth pastor. Our church had a Christian school. About 95% of the teens who made up the core of that youth ministry attended our Christian school, including a few of you in this room, and I'll try not to make eye contact. And early on in my time in that role, I made a very conscious decision to embrace the idea of a ministry primarily geared to teens in a Christian school. It wasn't what I set out to do. Um, It wasn't really where I thought I wanted to end up. But then I realized I I grew up and graduated from a Christian school. I had volunteered in Christian schools while I was in college. I helped start a Christian school in Alaska. It really was my world, so it just made sense. In fact, eventually, I convinced the powers that be that we could relocate the sports storage room and convert it into an office for the youth pastor, right between the high school restrooms and the elementary restrooms. You got it. So I, could be, I was thinking so I could be accessible to all the students at all times, and it sounded like such a good idea until the bathroom vents got covered with snow, and then nobody came in my office. But one of the highlights of my Christian school experience was, uh, my personal Christian school experience, was attending um, an annual convention of Christian school high school students. These conventions were held in every region in North America and around the world, actually. And our school growing up was in the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia, a very, very rural area that was dominated by farming, fishing, and tourism. So it was a big deal for us to go to these conventions with a couple hundred students and compete in academics and sports and fine arts and performing arts and speech and music and stuff like that. And in my sophomore year, my classmates and I competed in our regional convention in Moncton, New Brunswick in 1983, and we qualified to participate in the international convention, which was in Texas that year at the University of North Texas. Did you get that? Nova Scotia. We were in Nova Scotia competing in New Brunswick and qualified for the international convention in Texas. I had no idea that about 18 months later, our family would move to Louisville, Texas, about 15 minutes from where that convention was held. But I had no idea at the time. But this convention was the highlight of my high school experience. There were 5,000 students at this convention. We took over, you just go in and take over the university campus because colleges, uh, they've dismissed for the year. We lived in the dorms. We had evening rallies in the football stadium. My dad was a dean in one of the dorms, and my friend and I were his gophers uh, all week just running all over the place, running errands, checking on things. I'll never forget the night that the evening rally in the football stadium was cut short because of a tornado warning, and uh, there were a couple Nova Scotia boys. We had no idea what that sky meant. And uh, so anyway, they dismissed us early, sent us all in a lockdown in our dorms, And Dan thought that would be a great time to send us cross campus to the headquarters to get some paperwork for him. Again, we were just some, we'd never seen a tornado or a tornado warning or that green sky thing in Nova Scotia, so we had no idea, but I'll never forget that. So a few years later, I found myself on staff in a church with a Christian school, and I thought it would be a great opportunity for the students in our school to participate in the regional convention and have the experience that I had, and who knows, maybe even qualify for the international. So 
Spring of, backing up a little bit, spring of 1991, we took our first group of students to our regional convention, which was in Scroon Lake, New York. I think there were eight students on that trip, I think, along with Alethea and I, who were their 22 and 21-year-old chaperones. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I really questioned the discernment of their parents, sending 21 and 22. I have some pictures. This was our, this was our best, this actually was, I wasn't 91, I believe it was 92, because I, yeah, it was 92. Um, it wasn't any later than 92, right, Chad? So that was, uh, this is our basketball team, and we've got another picture here of, uh, oh, there's, I don't, I'm guessing that might have been a quartet, uh, because they had to compete in non-athletics as well, so they learned to sing just for that convention. And then next we had, oh, this was one of the buses we chartered, and we were the, this is later on, we were kind of the, uh, we had a lot of fun. That was the UMaine Championship Hockey Team bus, and so that was pretty cool. Next, uh, this is a, our, one of the last groups that I was a part of, and then I think there's one more, maybe Deb or two. Oh, this is, oh, I'm going to tell the story, but this is Dad actually speaking at that event one year, and then I think this is a group that we took who qualified to go to nationals, the international convention in Texas, so that's actually outside uh, the arena in Texas, and I don't know, must, the sun must have been bright or something. So... Um, Anyway, back up a little bit. It's 1994. This was our fifth year to attend this convention. We had about 22 or 23 students there. We were starting to make our presence known at this event. Our chartered, I think our chartered bus with the Disney movies playing on the TVs kind of made us a star of the campus. So and we ran that bus all week long, and nobody wanted to ride the, the beat-up shuttles that they were running. They, all wanted, they waited for our bus. Um, but I've been talking with the convention coordinator who we knew through some uh, connections in the network of Christian schools that we'd been a part of. And I remember talking with him about my frustrations of what I saw as a bit of a missed opportunity in our evening rallies. And they invited four different speakers, a different speaker each night. There was no cohesive theme. I felt like the speaker, of course, I was 20-something, and I felt like the speakers were too old for this group. They were, they were pretty out of touch. Their messages weren't finding any place to land, in my opinion, and I felt like we needed to do a better job of finding the right speakers to connect with these students at this event. So you can probably guess what happened. He invited me to speak. There were four evening rallies. He asked Dad to speak at the first two, and he asked me to speak at the last two. I was 26 years old. I was a youth pastor, which which, you know, when the traditional model of, for the youth pastor is the youth pastor gets to preach about every other month, if he's lucky, on a Sunday night. So that was my, the extent of my preaching at that point. Preaching wasn't really what I did. Um, I'd been, you know, directing a small teen camp in Nova Scotia for a few years, but this was different. This was 600 high school students. And all their stuffy, I was more concerned about their stuffy, condescending, judgmental chaperones. And without even thinking about it, I accepted that invitation. I had a year to prepare I tell you what, when we arrived on campus the following year, Dad preached the first two nights. It kind of was his thing. It's what he did. The morning of day three rolled around, and I started to feel a little bit intimidated. I started to wonder if I really belonged in this situation, in this role. I started to wonder if I really was the right person for the job. The convention director and I had agreed last year that it was time to make a change with the speakers and, and a whole different approach. And at the time, we agreed that I might be part of the solution. But now it's Wednesday morning, and I'm really beginning to wonder. And I would have liked to have stayed in my room all day once I unfolded from my fetal position. It would have been nice to have had some study time, some cram time, some prep time. Might have been nice to, might have boosted my confidence. But I had other responsibilities. I had 25 students there who needed to be escorted to all their events. I had a volleyball, a killer volleyball team to coach. And I wanted to 
watch our basketball team dominate, and I had people who needed me. So I just had to go with what I prepared and trust that God had led me in my preparation back home and just go with it. I wish I could tell you that my messages those two nights led to a best-selling book and accompanying book tour and magazine covers (laughs) and talk show appearances. But the truth is, I don't even remember what I spoke on. I don't remember a lot about it at all. It was mostly like an out-of-body experience for me. Here's my point. Every once in a while, as followers of Christ, God will nudge us out of our comfort zones into arenas of life and into circumstances and into opportunities that we are not comfortable with. And oftentimes, our problem in these situations is not that we're not willing. Like, kind of like we've been <coughs> learning uh, about Jonah these last few weeks, kind of after he kind of had the whole whale experience. It's not that we're not willing as much as we, now we feel like we're unable We're like, God, I'd be happy to do this, but this is beyond me. I don't know how to do this. And every once in a while in the life of a Christian, it kind of cycles back around. It's not a once-for-all kind of thing. Every once in a while, in order for God to accomplish his kingdom purposes, every once in a while, God's going to come to me, and God's going to come to you, and sometimes he's going to come to us as a group, as a church, and say, here's an opportunity, here's an assignment, and I want you to go do this, go out and just do this. And our natural tendency is to look at our resources and look at our abilities and look at our talents and look at our experiences and say, well, you got the wrong man. I mean, you got the wrong woman. You got the wrong teenager. I'm willing, but I can't do that. I'm not able to do what you're asking me to do. I'd love to, but I don't have the ability. I don't have the resources. I don't have the skills. I don't have the training. And I hate to say no, God, but I'm going to have to decline. This is beyond me. Sometimes it's something in Scripture, sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's just an internal thing that I can't really describe, but you just kind of know when God's prompting you outside your comfort zone. For some of you, it could be a relationship that God wants you to start, or God wants you to bump up a notch. For some of you, maybe it's your relationships with your, with your husband or with your wife, it's time to start talking about some stuff in your marriage. For some of you, maybe it's with your kids, some conversations are long overdue and it's time to take that relationship to another place to to go where you've never gone in your relationship with your kids. Maybe God wants to talk, wants you, maybe God wants you to talk with somebody about their relationship with God and you're like, oh no, 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 not me, not me, no, no, I'm not, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm going to tell you about one of my experiences that in, in, in that way in a few weeks, but you're thinking that's not what I do. I'll pray for them, I'll treat them well, I'll be the nicest person they know, and I will serve them. But I can't bring this up, because I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, I don't, what if they ask me a question, I don't know the answer, I, what if they ask me a question about evolution, or abortion, or what if, why I have that political sign on my lawn, I don't, I don't have the answers, and since I don't have the answers, then I can't, I just don't do that. that, that's for somebody else, that's for the trained professionals, that's for the people who are really zealous about that, and I'll, I'll treat them nice, and I think that's what God's called me to do. I'm willing, but I'm unable. I'm not good with words. I'm not smart enough. Maybe in time, I'll talk with them about it, but I don't see that happening. Maybe God is nudging you about a job change. Maybe you've been in a job so long that you think that's what defines you. You know, it's like, hi, my name is X, and I'm a Y. And you just, it's just like, it's like it's part of you now. 
And for the most part, you know, things are going great in the job, and I mean, you don't have any issues with your job, but every once in a while you're lying in bed at night thinking, and you, you feel like maybe, maybe God's beginning to nudge you and to kind of give you a vision for something different. And you're willing, but you're like, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, God, because I've done this for so long, and I'm not sure that I can learn something new, and I'm, not, I'm pretty secure here, and the idea of leaving this scares me, so I don't know if I can do that. Or maybe you're a high school student and God is nudging you to check out of your whole set of friends and start over. That's pretty crazy talk. Maybe because he wants you to be an influence rather than be influenced. Maybe because they're dragging you down. I mean, you're in church this morning. Where are they? And you think, well, well God, I don't know how to do that. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. That's extreme. How do I make new friends at this point? You know, I'm 16. And what do I tell them? And, and I don't want to say no to you, but that is such a crazy idea. Uh, so far out of my league, I don't know how to do that. <clears throat> what are we supposed to do as Christ followers when God nudges us beyond our comfort zones to begin to embrace and tackle situations and opportunities and relationships that are beyond us? What are we supposed to do? That's what I want to talk about today. It took me a long time to get here because I guarantee you this. you've either been through it, or you're going through it, or you will go through it. And if you've been through it and are going through it, just get ready because it cycles back and you'll go through it again, this idea of being pushed out of a comfort zone. Because God is constantly engineering circumstances where our faith and his faithfulness are going to intersect. And it's in that intersection that we know God and that we experience God. It's in that intersection that we, we discover God for who he really is. And as long as we're just sitting back where it's familiar and it's comfortable, and oftentimes we miss out on God, and maybe someone misses out on what God wants to do through us. Fortunately, we're not the first group of Christ followers to experience this. If you have your Bibles and you're sitting somewhere where you can see it, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> Matthew 14 is the beginning of two stories that, um, if you grew up in church, you're, you're, you know both these stories, but you probably never heard these two stories connected, and yet they happen in a very connected way. Here's what happened. Jesus was, was going to try to teach the disciples what to do when they were given an impossible task. That was his goal. So what he did is he illustrated it with one narrative, with one incident, and then he uh, tested them on what he had taught them. So these two incidents go together, and actually in the book of Mark, we're going to look at it in a little bit, uh, Mark gives us a little bit different spin, a little clarification on the whole situation to help us see how these two things go together. So in the first narrative, Jesus illustrates the principle of here's what to do when I've called you to do the impossible. And in the second incident, he gives them a test to see if they know how to apply what they've just learned. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 14, about halfway through this chapter in verse 15. Jesus has just finished teaching, and it's getting late, and the people are hungry, and the disciples decide it's time to send the people away so they can get something to eat. And Some of you already know what story we're talking about. Matthew 14, verse 15, I'm going to read. As evening approached, so it's around 3 or 4 in the afternoon, in the way that uh, this, this daily kind of routine worked. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Long pause. I kind of think Jesus had to look away just to keep from laughing because he knew what he was asking them to do. And the disciples were like, okay, we'll give them something to eat, Jesus. Yeah, sure, Mm mm-hmm. 
Jesus, hello. And so Jesus sort of sets up this dilemma and this tension, and he essentially gives them an impossible task. He says, you guys feed them. Uh, They don't need to be sent away. And they say to Jesus what we say to God when he nudges us, verse 17. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. (coughs) In other words, we're not going to argue with you. We are willing, but as we examine our resources, we've only got a little bit of bread and a couple of fish, and there's like thousands of people here. In other words, we don't have the resources necessary to do what you've called us to do. We're not saying no. We're just saying we can't. It's impossible. So now Jesus has them exactly where he wants them, and, and he brings them to this point to teach this lesson. Verse 18, he says, Bring them here to me, he said. In other words, bring me what you do have. Bring me all your resources. Verse 19, he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. See what happened? Jesus said, I know you don't have the resources. I know you don't have the resources to do what I'm asking you to do. So hand them over to me. And Jesus takes the bread and the fish and he prays and he asks the Father to bless them. And he hands them back to the disciples and he's like, now go distribute the food to the people. So they start distributing the food to the people. And they get to the end of the process and everybody's had enough to eat and everybody's satisfied. And here are Jesus' disciples looking at each other going, wow, did you, look what, look what we, we slash he did. Look at that. This is cool. Who did this exactly? Did we, did we do it? Did we do it and didn't, or did he do it? I guess it doesn't matter. It was just cool. And while they're still trying to figure it out, look at the next verse, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So while the disciples are still kind of bewildered and trying to figure out this whole scenario, how did this happen? Jesus has given them an illustration of what he wants to teach them. Now he's going to test them because he gives them another impossible task. Um, He'd given them the first one, feed these people. We don't have enough food. We don't have resources. Give me your resources. Give me what you have. Here you go. You do it now. And the people were fed. And they're going, wow, that was amazing. I don't know what what happened there or who did it or whether we did it or he did it. And while they're still trying to figure it out, Jesus says, guys, get in the boat and you go sail over to the other side of the lake and I'll see you on the other side later. And what they didn't know is he's just given them a second impossible task. So they get in the boat. It's like a six or eight mile crossing, depending on where they put in. They've done this many times. They're fishermen. It's not a big deal. You know, we do this all the time. We'll see you over there. So they get in the boat. And they start to row or sail across the lake. I don't know if it ever dawned on them, like, how, okay, Jesus is going to see us over there. How is he getting over there? Is he going to hit a ride with somebody else? That, nobody really talks about that. So, but they start to row or sail or whatever it is they did across the lake. <coughs> and they're all talking about this because this thing just happened. It said immediately Jesus asked them to do this. So they're all talking about this incredible thing that they just experienced. And Matthew, because he's kind of the white-collar guy in the group, uh, he's got his notebook out and he's writing all this down just in case he wants to write a book someday, you know. And about the time they get in the boat, the wind comes up. Now, it's not a storm. It's just a strong wind. It's a headwind. Matthew says the boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And the harder they rode, the harder the wind blows. And the harder they rode, the less less headway they even made. This trip wasn't supposed to take that long. I mean, a couple hours at the most. And the wind starts to blow. Remember, it's late in the day. You know, they're going to send the crowd home around 3 or 4. Then they fed them. 
So they stayed around long enough to feed them. By now the sun has set. So here they are out on the lake in familiar waters, but rowing as hard as they could in the dark, and they just couldn't make headway because Jesus has now asked them to do a second impossible thing, hoping that they're going to connect these two incidents and learn a lesson. So here's what happens, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So there's Jesus praying by himself. Here are his guys out there. You know, we're going to do what Jesus said. We're going to go row across the lake, and they're out there in the middle of the lake, and the wind's so strong they can't make any progress. Look at this next verse, verse 25. Shortly before dawn, other translations say during the fourth watch, so it's probably between 3 and 6 a.m. Remember, they set out around sundown. They should have arrived in a couple hours. Now it's nearly dawn. They're still out in the lake. This, this, they've been out there for eight to ten hours. It should have been a two-hour trip. It's pitch black. They're soaking wet. Matthew's put his notebook away because he's seasick. This is not his deal. And then something very unusual and unexpected happens. Verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. <coughs> Mark adds an interesting detail in, 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 to the story in his account. Mark wasn't an eyewitness, uh, but he got his eyewitness accounts from Peter. So Mark writes that Jesus wasn't just walking on the lake. He says Jesus walked past them. So you got to picture this. It's like they're just rowing for all they got, and they're not going anywhere. And it's like... <laughs> you know, we've been struggling here for hours and we're soaking wet. We can't even hold the oars anymore. There's no flesh on our hands. And Jesus, you know, is walking out on the water and, and, and as if that's not weird enough, he's making better progress than they are, you know? I mean, and he told us that he would see us on the other side, but this is ridiculous, Jesus, you know? Well, they didn't recognize Jesus at first. When they see him, they're not sure it's Jesus. They, they have no idea it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost. And, and these aren't cowards. These are hard, you know, hard, brave, experienced fishermen. They're in their element. This is what they do. But they say, Jesus, they see Jesus, they see this figure out there in the water, and they're scared to death. Now, now, when we picture this scene, we picture one of two things. We picture either the flannel graph from Sunday school that looks something like this, right? That's what you're picturing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Not exactly. Or at the very least, we, we picture a backlit person like this, you know, where the light is just right. He's got some footlights out there that are shining up on his face, and the background is all... And, of course, it's nice and calm there, too, actually. He's got a blank... He's got a Snuggie, apparently. So um, I hadn't really noticed that before. Um, his robes are flowing because the wind is... It's a gentle breeze, apparently, because his hair and the robes are flowing just right. And uh, so it's a full moon. No, 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 no. Please take that picture down. Um, it's like, it's like, do you see something? What? Do you see something? I see something out there. They saw a dark, unlit object moving across the top of the water. They're squinting in the darkness to try to make out what it is that they're looking at. And as the form gets closer and it passes them, and they realize it's a form of a man, and they're, and they're stuck because they haven't been able to make any movement here for hours. They can't make any forward progress. They're like sitting ducks, and they're scared to death. You know why they're scared to death? Because they were not expecting Jesus. Apparently, Jesus is the farthest thing from their minds, and Jesus shows up, and they're surprised. Here's what the text says, verse 26. 
When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So from this ghostly figure, they hear a familiar voice. It says, don't be afraid, it's me. And at that moment, it hits Peter what the point of all this is. <coughs> he's the only one that seems to get it. And suddenly, as soon as they realize it's Jesus and he's coming closer now, I guess he's maybe looped back around toward them or something, and suddenly Peter gets it. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says to feed the people. And we can't feed the people. All we have is this little boy's lunch, you know, and he says, let me have it. And we, 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 let, we give it to him. We give him what we have. And, and then he gives it back to us. And we do what we know how to do, which is break it up and pass it out. And somehow by us giving him what we have, all of our resources, all the people got fed. And then he says, get in the boat and row across the lake and I'll meet you later. And he knows that we can't make it against this headwind. And all of a sudden, again, we're not capable to do what he's called us to do. And then Peter begins to put it all together. And he looks out at Jesus and he says this in verse 28. Verse 28. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus, if that's you, I want you to ask me to do something impossible. Go ahead. See, Peter didn't just jump into the water. He didn't jump into the water and like, Jesus, if that's you, say, you know. (laughs) Jesus, if that's you, I want you to ask me to do something. Do what's impossible. I want you to call me out. Call me out to do something that you know I don't have the ability to do because I think I'm getting it. I think I'm beginning to make the connection. I think I'm beginning to fit this all together. I'm, and now I'm, I'm ready to test my theory to fit this thing together. I'm going to do it in front of my friends. If that's you, Jesus, call to me. Look what happens, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. So it's got to be your idea. But if you call me, I think I understand what you're trying to teach us. Verse 29. Come, he said. If you, how many of you grew up hearing the story? I'm just kind of curious. How many of you heard the story like before today or before you were even an adult? Okay. So if you grew up hearing the story, you probably wondered, what was that all about? I mean, where did Peter even come up with this idea? Why did he ask Jesus to call him? I mean, what's this about? What was this thing where was Jesus, was he, was he trying to teach him a principle here? Uh, and Peter finally understood the principle? That's what I believe it was. And the principle is this. When God calls you to do something, when God makes his will known to you, once you know it is the call of God and once you know it is the will of God, you can rest assured you'll be provided with the resources of God and with the power of God. Because the call of God is always accomplished with the resources of God. And the will of God is always accompanied by the power of God. And when God calls us to do something unusual, when God asks us to do something that's outside our comfort zone and beyond our ability, the kind of thing where we say, God, I'm willing, I'm just not able, I think you got the wrong person, you know, I'm not rebelling, I just don't think I can. What we have to remember and what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples and when Peter finally put it all together is that God's call in your life and God begins to nudge you outside your comfort zone when he finally says, I want you to get out of the boat, that along with that call, God always provides the resources and God always provides the power for us to accomplish what he's called us to do. 
So what did Peter do? Peter did exactly what he knew how to do. Verse 29. Then Peter got down out of the boat. That's all he knew how to do. And he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. You know what Peter knew about walking on the water? Zero. You know what Peter knew how to do? He knew how to get out of a boat. And he knew how to walk. So he swung his legs out over the side and he began to walk because that's all he knew how to do. And he discovered in that moment the thing that Jesus was trying to teach the disciples and that Jesus is constantly bringing us to as believers. And it's this, that when God calls you to do something, when God calls us to do something, he waits for us to do what we know how to do and then God does what only God can do. Let that sink in. <clears throat> and with the call of God come the resources of God, and with the will of God comes the power of God to do what God has called us to do. The problem is this. The problem is the older we get and the more successful we get and the more secure we get, the more influence we gain, the more stuff we accumulate, we just don't like to get out of the boat. Because we're like, come on, Jesus, I got an idea. Why don't you come over here and get in the boat with us? Why don't you come be a part of what we're doing? Because you come get in the boat with me because, I mean, like, I've been working really hard and I finally got the boat just the way I want it. I mean, it is organized and polished and well-equipped. And, man, doesn't it look good? And all the kids are doing great. And I got myself a man and I got this job and I'm secure and I'm finally stable. And I'm comfortable here, Jesus. So why don't you just come over here? You're out on the water already. Just come on, walk over here and get in the boat with us. I know how to do life in my boat. I don't know how to walk on water. And every once in a while in my life and every once in a while in your life, our Heavenly Father is going to say, we're going to do something different here. I want to take you relationally where you've never been. I want to use you in a way that you've never imagined. I want to demonstrate my power in your life in ways that you've never experienced or imagined or thought was possible. I just need you to swing your legs over the side of the boat and start walking toward me. <clears throat> ah, that's really cool, God, but I don't know how. I don't, that's, th- this is impossible thing you're asking me to do. It just, we know it doesn't work, and it, I don't know. And God's like, I know. But remember, my call is always accompanied by my resources. But just because you don't have what, what you think it takes is, is really, it's not relevant. What's relevant is I have called you. This was my idea. Now come to me. And your faith, when it intersects with my faithfulness, he says, things will be different and you'll know me and experience me in a brand new way. For a lot of us in in this room, this is not the first church we've ever been a part of. And the reason that you and I have been in churches where nothing's going on, and the reason that there's always a danger that this could become a church where nothing's going on, is because staying in the boat doesn't require the power of God. It doesn't take a miracle to just row through the storm. I think the power of God is only available to us outside our comfort zone. 
To which we go, I think the church that's no longer trying to accomplish something that requires the spirit and the power of God, I mean, why should God show up there? One of the dangers that we face as a church is that we could become so, I don't know, influential, successful, or comfortable that we think we got this figured out. We got this under control. We are a well-oiled machine. It's firing all cylinders. Look at us go. We know how to do it now. God, thanks for getting us started. You know, we can take it from here. What a tragedy that would be because the power of God is only present where the power of God is needed. And every once in a while, God says, I want you to get out of the boat. I want you to do the unusual. I want you to do the unexpected. I want you to do the impossible. Oh, and you can trust me. You can trust me that once you swing your legs over the side, and once you do what you know how to do, that is the key, then you can trust me. You can trust me to do what only I can do. Because the resources of God are always available to the person, to the church that responds to the call of God. I'm just telling you, this kind of scenario is going to happen in your life. You're going to experience these moments when you have to decide, do I step out of the boat or do I stay right here where I'm comfortable? I mean, when I think about the future of this church and where the direction of this church and where God wants us to go over the next few months and the years ahead, I'm convinced that he's going to call some of us to get out of the boat for the first time. He's going to call us as a church to get out of the boat, this boat that we've worked so hard to make so comfortable and we got just right. We've got to quit measuring our likelihood of success by our own limited resources. I'll just back that. I didn't put it on the screen, so I just got to repeat that one. We've got to quit measuring our likelihood of success by our own limited resources. Well, look... Guys, of course you can't feed all these people with a little boy's lunch. I'm not asking you to do that on your own. The fact that I've asked you means that I'm going to be involved in it. Now, trust me. Every once in a while, God's going to say to you, and he's going to say to me, relationally, financially, in our business, in our family, in our service to others, whatever it might be, he's going to say, I want you to trust me. I'm going to give you an impossible assignment. Don't measure your chance for success by your own limited resources. Look at the chances of success through my resources because the call of God is always accompanied by the resources of God. And our responsibility isn't to see through the circumstances to figure out how things are going to work out. Our responsibility on those occasions is to do what we know to do and trust that God will do what only God can do. Now let me ask you this. What is that thing for you? If you were participating half hour or so ago, you have an answer on that card in front of you. <clears throat> what is that thing for you? The reason I like the story is, we haven't gotten to that part, that part yet, so the reason I like the story is the way it ends, because the thing I always uh, second-guess myself about, and maybe you do too, is what if it doesn't work out? What if halfway through this thing that I think God's called me to do and I, and, I, and I do something dumb or I lose my nerve or I start trying to control the situation? That's exactly what happened to Peter, remember? And poor Peter, he gets such a bad rap, but I think this is such a misunderstood dialogue here. Look what happens in verse 29. 
And Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, which is kind of weird to me, think about that. I don't know how you see the wind, but when he was a fisherman, so I guess he could read it. But when he saw the wind and he realized, I don't know anything about wind. I spent my life in it, but I know nothing about it. I don't know what to do about the wind. The wind is too much for me. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus said, I don't think so, Pedro. You're on your own. That'll teach you not to trust me. And Peter was never seen or heard from again. End of story. Next chapter. (laughs) I thought you would laugh because we laugh. But isn't that what we're afraid of? What if I mess up? What if it doesn't work out? What if I never get another job as good as this one? What if I'm single the rest of my life? What, or what if I have to be married to this person the rest of my life? What if I offend someone? What if they reject me? What if I'm poor the rest of my life? I love what happens in verse 31. Here's that word again. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. He said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Here's why I think we misunderstand what happened. As a child, I remember this story in Sunday school. Uh, we were thinking the same thing. Poor Peter, he's the only one with enough courage to get out of the boat. And Jesus like scolds him. He's like, you little faith, why did you doubt? Shame on you. And I'm thinking, what about the 11 cowards who were in the boat and never got out of the boat? They're the ones you should have reprimanded Jesus, you know? This is my spin on what happened. And, but you know how I think Jesus said this? I think he says it like we say things to our children when they're little. It's like, oh man, you were so close. You just keep pedaling. You're gonna, you, you could have made it. You just swing all the way through. You would have had that. You could have made it. Peter, 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 you were so close. I'm not even talking to those cowards in the boat because I'm ticked off with them right now. So you just don't know, Peter. You just had itty-bitty faith. Like you, you, like you still had your training wheels on. Or like you're, you're still hitting the ball off a tee. But if you just had a little bit more faith. In fact, in fact Peter, you know what? I'm going to give you another chance. A time is coming, and I'm going to give you some other impossible assignments. And I'm going to keep giving you (coughs) impossible assignments until you learn to factor me into the equation and learn to never take your eyes off of me and learn never to to trust in your own resources because, Peter, you were close. You were so close. I think that's Jesus' response to us when we get close and we mess it up. When we get outside the boat and we're hanging on with both hands, It's that Father God who's going, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Trust me. Just let go. Let go. I'll catch you. Trust me. You don't have any idea what's waiting for you. You have no idea how I'm going to use you. Just trust me. Come on, come on, come on. Just a little bit more faith. Then look how the story ends, and Jesus uh, saves Peter, reaches out his hand. Why did you doubt? He says, verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Here's how Mark ends the story. Same incident, different account, but here's what Mark says in Mark Mark 6. He says, then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Remember, this is Peter's version to Mark. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They never saw the connection between you don't have what it takes, I'm going to take what you have, I'm going to give it back to you, now you go do the impossible. They never saw the connection, they just didn't see it. Peter's the only one who got it. He's like, ah, I think I understand. 
And if you'll call me out, then I will do what, what I know to do, and I will trust you to do what only you can do. I get it. The issue is not my limited resources. The issue is God has called me. That's all I need to know. Because God's call is always accompanied by God's resources, and God's will is always accomplished by God's power. Our responsibility is simply to throw our legs over the side of the boat, walk in his direction, and trust him to do what we cannot do on our own. I'm convinced one of the things, if you're wondering what it is that God's calling you to do, I'm convinced that one of the things that God is calling each of us to do as followers of Christ, he's calling each of us to position ourselves in the lives of people who aren't yet following him, so that one day our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors might become followers of Jesus too. And you talk about an impossible task. But if it's not real clear to you exactly what God is calling you to do in other areas of your life, you just be certain that he is calling you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people in your life. There is nothing more boring. There is nothing more boring in this Christian life than staying in the boat. Because you've got everything under control. Perhaps this morning, this morning God's trying to get you to move in a direction. And you'll have the opportunity once you've stepped out of the boat to say, Lord, this was not my idea. My idea was to stay where I was because I worked really hard to get in that just the way I wanted it. But you've got me into this and trusting you to see me through it. And when God has called you, he loves that prayer because then you're on the verge of experiencing him. Experiencing him in a way that you can't experience him any other way. Oh, by the way, I preached those two nights in that convention of Christian high school students in 1995, and I never heard from them again. But five five years later, I spoke at a similar convention of 600 Christian high school students in South Texas, and I spoke the whole week, all four sessions. That was in 2000, so at least I was speaking on a more regular basis, so it wasn't quite the stretch that the New York experience was. By the way, if you'll just keep this in mind for me, and then I'm done. I spoke at the closing session at the Strive Youth Conference in Bangor last fall, and they've invited me back to be the keynote speaker for the weekend. So I'll be speaking three times that weekend to 150 high school students at Columbia Street Baptist in Bangor on November 7th and 8th. And so I would appreciate your prayers that weekend and as I prepare for that. The challenge for us, and thank you, give it up for you, thank you. I would love to go into that setting as an extension of you. So knowing that you're praying for me is huge. The challenge for us is that we say yes when we're scared to death. The challenge for us is that we say yes when we're pretty sure God's picked the wrong person. The challenge for us is that we say yes when we feel like we are not equipped, we're not educated enough, we haven't got the skills, we haven't got the training. It's not my gifted area, God. Um, that we just say yes. The challenge is not to live our whole life and miss what God has called us to do and what he wants to do in us and through us. Remember, God's call is always accompanied by God's resources. God's will is always accomplished with God's power. I'm going to play a song. And I just, um, I'm not really sure really what I want to ask you to do. I'd like for you, as we play the song, which is an incredibly powerful song, you probably know it, and I think it just really fits today. Just grab that card that you filled out, and, and maybe there's some course of action you need to take. 
I don't know, maybe you need to walk across the room and hand that to somebody. Maybe you need to uh, just get on your knees right where you are and just pray over that. I'll, tell you, I'll leave the stool right here. Maybe you just need to come up and, and just leave it there. You can crumple it up, tear it up, whatever you want to do. Just surrender it to God. Maybe you need to take it home and leave it right in your Bible where you'll see it every day or stick it somewhere where it's right in front of your face so you'll just be reminded of what it is that God is nudging you to do and that you're ready to swing your feet over the edge of the boat and walk towards him. So however you feel prompted to move, I encourage you to. If you want to just stand where you are and sing along with a song and raise your voice as a prayer of, uh, of faith, whatever, that's cool too. So this, we're going to let the song play. And I just encourage you to not check out. Let God do what he has started. Okay?
Please.